you have your Bibles, take them and turn in them to Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 24, as we make our way uh, through this uh, Advent Psalm. And uh, consider this question, who is the King of Glory? Uh, We started last week by reflecting on uh, the fact that the King of Glory is the creator of heaven and earth. And in fact, that is our, um, our Advent theme, so I'm just going to go over here and light the one san- candle for that to remind us of the fact that when we think about the coming of this King of glory, he is the creator of heaven and earth. What we're going to look at a little bit um, this morning is the fact that this King of glory is also the Holy One, the Savior of the world. And so those are the two themes that, um, well, one we looked at last week and the other theme we'll be looking at today. And then the last one we'll look at on December 20th as we consider that this King of Glory is the coming one. And that's found in Psalm 24. And so let's read it together. And uh, this morning our focus is only on uh, verses 3 to 6, which will be enough for us, I'm sure, to digest uh, this morning. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this instruction to us even today and this encouragement to us today. As David teaches us a little bit about about you and about how we worship you and about what you have done and what you will do. Father, we need help to understand you. We need help to think correctly of you. We need help when it comes to worshiping you. Because we tend to get it wrong sometimes. As we focus our thoughts this morning on this little section, Father, we need your help even to do that. To consider what it means to have access to your presence. To consider how we have gained that access. And to consider how that changes everything. So Father, help us as we work our way through these verses this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 24 is our focus for the next uh, two weeks. We started last week, and as I mentioned earlier, we're considering this question, who is the king of glory? In fact, it's a question that is going to be on the hearts and minds of everyone that's involved in Bethlehem as we try and communicate this truth to those who walk through our building uh, over those four days. I like the way Pastor Barry um, helped us uh, think about it on our meeting on Saturday when he kind of put it very simply that he is really, really big. 
and that he is able to meet any one of our needs or our concerns. So last week, as we considered this king of glory, we did see something of his bigness. When we considered the fact that he is the creator of heaven and earth, all that we see around us, all that we don't see, everything that's in the farthest universe, everything that's in the deepest sea, everything that's the smallest it can, uh, can be, has been created by God. As the psalmist reminded, because he created it, he owns it. And because he owns it, he rules over it. And because he establishes it, he continues to maintain it and guide it and direct it. He is incredibly vast and huge. And he is the one to whom we get to commit our lives to. And so last week, the theme was the king of glory is the one who is the creator of heaven and earth. I have really wrestled with this particular text today from a lot of different angles. Actually, through the week, I have wrestled with it. And I've wrestled with it because I can't figure out an analogy or a way to actually think about what I want us to think about. I want us to think about the vastness of God. I want us to consider again who it is that we worship. I want us to think a little bit of what it means to worship, about how we enter into worship of this great God. Because we seem to have trivialized that access that we have to God. We seem to have diminished him and made him small. We have all kinds of individuals in this world that we look up to with awe. We look up to their wealth with awe. We look up to their power with awe. We look up to their influence with awe. We look up to, uh, look up to their accomplishments with awe. And in fact, the vast majority of us would never have the opportunity to access them. And if we did access them, there would be all numbers of protocols and things and security checks that we would have to go through before we would even get a, a, a potential audience with these individuals. And yet God is so vaster, so greater, so bigger, so wealthy so stronger, so more accomplished than any of these people, and yet we seem to treat him with such triviality. I want us to try and grasp a little bit of what the psalmist is encouraging us to think about here in this particular psalm. There's an amazing um, gap that takes place between verses 2 and 3. And it's a gap that I, I think we need to at least fill in and think a little bit about. Because in verse 2, and 1 and 2, he's talked about the greatness and the bigness and the power and the might and the reign and the rule of this God. And he is such a God that he is beyond anything that we can comprehend. He's beyond anything that we have ever had access to. And, and so he's presented this massive picture for us of God. And then in verse 3, it's almost this, this unthinkable statement that he makes or these questions that he asks, which is simply this, who may ascend to his holy hill? Who may approach him? And, and it's almost like that's too big a gap. It's almost like the, the, the question that he raises doesn't fit. It's almost like the immediate answer should be no one. Who do we think that we are, that we have access to the Holy One, that we have access to this Mighty One, this Powerful One, this Creator of the heaven and earth? And so as we come to verse 3, there's an incredible marvel that I see that the psalmist is, is even holding out for us. And it's maybe two things that made me marvel. The first one is simply 
The fact that the creator of this universe, the owner of it all, the king over it all, the one who leads and guides it, who holds it in existence, that he is in fact approachable. That is amazing to me. That David even assumes that we may come into his presence, that we may come to where he resides on earth. And the psalmist in Psalm 8 um, wondered about that himself as he said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then he says, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You see, he's caught in this tension again that God is so big that God is, they want to sing God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. But he is, he's, he's massive. And then David thinks, and what is man that you think about him or that you even care for him? And so the psalmist sets, sets before us this fact that this God is approachable. And I think, loved ones, that we take that for granted. I think that we really don't grasp in our hearts and our minds what the psalmist is actually saying when he's uh, in thinking out loud here and saying, who may ascend to the hill? Who may stand in the presence of the Holy One? It's, it's mind-boggling that this God is approachable. You see, I wonder, when we think about this in the Scriptures, and we think about the approachability of God, what kinds of stories run through our head? And some of these shatter us when we think, think about them, and, and they really cause us to be confused a little bit. But do we ever think about uh, uh, the, the 70 men who had uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant had been sent back from the land of Philistine into Israel. And people were rejoicing that this Ark had been sent back and, 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 and that uh, this, this amazing um, um, uh, artifact in which God said he would dwell there, that 70 men walked up and popped open the lid to have a little peek inside and they were slaughtered. Do we ever think about Nadab and Abihu who, who thought that worship of God was something that they could fiddle with. And so they went into the presence of God and they offered strange incense. And fire from, came out of heaven and consumed them. Do we think about Ananias and Sapphira who thought it was no big deal to lie to God. And so when they came into the presence of God, they lied about what they had been doing. And it said that God struck them dead. Like I, I don't know if I even have a sufficient understanding of whose presence it is that I come into when I come to worship. And the fact that that God is approachable is amazing. I think of earthly kings. And as I said, I, I encourage you to think about who you think is the most wealthy or the greatest person in the world that, that, that you might uh, think of and what it would take for you to enter into their presence. And I would likely say that whoever you're thinking about, you can't just saunter into their presence. I was thinking of this in earthly kings. Um, uh, back in the day, Esther uh, had been uh, taken into uh, the harem of a, a king and then she had become his queen. And as you know, uh, the Jews were hated by um, Haman. And, and so there was this edict that had gone out that all the Jews would be slaughtered on a particular day. And Mordecai, who was uh, one of the Jewish officials in the court, came to Esther, who was the queen, and said, you got to go talk to the king about this. And you might think, well, she's the queen. 
she would have access into the king's presence whenever she wanted. And what you remember what Esther said back to Mordecai? She says, all the king's servants. <laughs> I think of Humpty Dumpty when I say that. <laughs> all the king's servants and the people of the, of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. And except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. Loved ones, how do we know that God is going to hold out the golden scepter, so to speak, that we might live when we come into his presence? See, the approachability that David talks about here is, is strange. And it's off-putting to start with. The, the second marvel that I see in this particular verse, at least in verse 3, is, is just this assumption or this statement that the creator of the universe, the holy God, this sovereign king, has come to earth at all. Of all the, the places that he could reside, of all the places that he could come and sort of set up a temporary abode, so to speak, he comes to the midst of sinful men and women. And he has a holy hill, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And he has a temple before which men and women can enter and offer sacrifices and worship. There are hints of the holiness of God in this text. And I think sometimes we limit the a consideration of the holiness of God to the fact that God is pure or that God is moral. And that is true. God is so pure and God is so uh, morally uh, pure that uh, there is nobody, no sin that can even come close to his presence. And so there is a sense in which we think about the holiness of God when we understand his moral purity and his holiness. Like Isaiah, when he came into the temple of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he fall flat on his face, and he says, Woe is me! Because he recognized that he was a sinful man in the presence of a holy God. But the holiness of God is not just to be thought of in terms of moral purity. The holiness of God applies to every one of his characteristics. Holiness means separate from. It means other than. And so, yes, God is separate from or other than us in holiness, but God is separate from us and other than us in power and wisdom. I, I think about this in Psalm 22, the beautiful psalm, that just a couple psalms before that, which Jesus was reciting or going through when he was on the cross and he was dying. And you know that psalm begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus goes on and he says, why are you far from saving me from my words uh, and, and the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out day by day to you, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. As Christ is on the cross, he's, he's sensing this, this separation. He's sensing that, that the, the punish, he's feeling the punishment of God for the sins of mankind. And then the very next word in verse 3 is, but you are holy. That's not a reference to the purity of God there. That's a reference to the wisdom and the holiness of God that saw the cross as the only way where a just God could be both just and the justifier of all those who would put their faith in Christ. 
And so we, we find the holiness of God, not only in his purity, not only in his wisdom, but in his justice, in his wrath, in his righteousness. All of those are expressions of the holiness of God. He's completely other than us. So isn't it a marvel that God would set up a place to be on earth? And that God would have a temple in which he would presence himself? And if you extend that into the New Testament, you think that God would come and live in me? These are things to marvel at. And they caught David, I believe, off guard. Off guard. God, whose creation is vast beyond measure, he comes to meet us. He comes down to us so that we can come up to him and stand in his presence. And so there's a marvel that, that causes David, I think, to wonder but then it becomes, I think, even more complicated and more confusing. We sang this song, um, Come and Worship, Do Not Be Afraid. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good song. And, and I think there's truth in that, Do Not Be Afraid. But I almost, well, I did in my own heart say, I'm afraid. Because I'm in the presence of God. And we ought not to just skip into his presence and, and say, here I am, you're lucky to have me, and it's wonderful to see you, pat, pat on the back. David is, is getting at this, so he says, okay, so who is it that can worship? And it seems like he almost presents an impossibility for us then when we come to verse 4. He says, okay, God is approachable. Okay, God has come to earth. So who can then go before him and who can stand in his presence? Well, this is what he says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully. I'm excluded. I don't fit. I don't meet any of those standards that God has set. So how is it that I can accept or respond to that invitation that David gives? He who has clean hands. Clean hands, I think, is a reference to a life and a pattern of life that is free from charges of being wrong or morally wrong or spiritually wrong or inconsistent. It's a general reference to our deeds and to our actions. It's a, a clean refers to being innocent or pure. It means that we haven't given ourselves over to harm and sin. And so who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has got perfect deeds and perfect actions. And then he says, and he who has a pure heart. I think most of us can fake it a little bit with our deeds and our actions. We can fool most of the people most of the time with our deeds and actions, even though our heart might be black and dark. But what about the thoughts and intents and motives of our hearts, who God and God alone sees? Who has a pure heart before they come before God? I don't have a pure heart. My thoughts and my motives betray my actions so many times. And then 
he adds to that a, a third one. After reminding us that our holiness and our approach to God is, is, is prerequisited by external holiness and internal holiness, then he says, thirdly, that the one who approaches this God is one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. It's a way of saying, lifting up one's soul is a way of saying, speaking about full-fledged commitment to this God. It's a way of saying that the worshiper of God has given him undivided attention, single-minded loyalty. He is all in, all heart, mind, soul, and muchness. It, muchness, it is all God's. There is no room for idols. There is no room for divided loyalties. We are committed to God and God alone. God has been my only priority. He has been my only object of worship throughout the week and throughout this day as I come before him. God and God alone has been my focus. Is that true of you this past week? Have you only worshipped God and God alone? I was thinking of this this morning as I was reading in 1 Samuel. It says, Then the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. I like that. That sounds good. The whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. And so Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Asherahs that are among you. Isn't that strange? I mean, what Samuel is acknowledging is that people worship God with a divided heart. We worship God with mixed loyalties. And he says, if you want to seek the Lord with all your heart, then get rid of all those foreign gods and those astras, those idols that are in your home. And he says, dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship only him. And so the psalmist says here, in answer to his question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He whose deeds and acts are pure, clean. He whose thoughts, intents, and motives are pure. He whose worship is undivided and whose focus is singularly given over to God. And then he adds a fourth one. He does not swear deceitfully. His or her speech is marked by integrity and truthfulness. No falsehood, no lying, no deceit, no error, truthfulness. Both verbal and nonverbal speech, no deceit before the Lord. It's interesting because our speech is a reflection of our heart. The Bible says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it's another way of the psalmist of saying that we have a pure heart. So then, you put this all together, our deeds and our disposition, our affections and our words are all placed under divine scrutiny. Our actions, our thoughts, our motives, all of these are before God. And so he says that that kind of person is the one that is able to ascend to the hill of God and to stand before his holy place. I can get into all kinds of trouble with illustrations and analogies. Um, and I, I can probably get into trouble with this one too, but um, here goes. 
I sometimes think about our preparation for worship, and I include myself here. I understand that David is talking not just about, uh, well, here he's, I think he's talking primarily about our corporate worship, our gathering together. But I recognize that all of life is worship. And that these things apply to all of life. But there is a sense in which when we gather to the temple to worship, there are sacrifices that are offered. There are ways that we offer those sacrifices. And then even the the holy of holies, the priest could only go in there once a year. And he had to go in a certain way. And so it was the way when they gathered together in corporate worship that they prepared themselves, that they thought it out, that they came with sacrifices to offer. And I think about that when, when I come to worship and when we come to worship together on the Lord. Lord's Day, is there any preparation that we go through? Is there any thought given to, 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 to thinking ahead of time, maybe Saturday night or, or maybe Sunday morning before we leave the house or getting here 10 minutes earlier and, and just recognizing whose presence it is that we are gathering together in to worship? And any thought to what David is talking here about our hearts and about our words and our deeds and our loyalties and, and our, uh, all of that kind of stuff? I recognize that it's a challenge. I recognize the pressures of family. I recognize the spiritual battles of coming to worship. But I think there is something that we can gain as a people from preparing our hearts and our minds as we come together with our families to worship together on a time such as this. But if that's all that we did, I don't think that that would be enough to grant us access to God. What I want us to see, loved ones, is that the basis of entry into the presence of God is established on the grounds grounds that are moral and ethical and that we fall short of those grounds. The only way that we ever gain access to God is through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one who through his perfect obedience, through his perfect life, through his perfect actions, through his perfect heart, has satisfied completely the requirements of God's law and then has died in our place, which we'll be reminded of in a few minutes, and that it's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that we enter into worship God. In the Old Testament, they had hope, and their hope was in the sacrifice of animals. Which that was, they were only a, a, a way to point ahead to the sacrifice that would come in Christ. But in Leviticus, Leviticus uh, Moses wrote, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Atonement is forgiveness. It's cleansing. So to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by its life. That's in, it says one gives his life for another and sheds his blood, that then one has access into the presence of God because one is purified and cleansed by the shedding of that blood. There is a way back so that we can enter God's presence. And in the New Testament, and now for Christians, and and since Christ has come and died, there's something more sure than the blood of animals, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And we know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if the mandate of verse 4 troubles you, that's a good thing. But if you stay troubled and miss the fact that the, the, the relief of your troubles in Jesus is in Jesus Christ, then that's a bad thing. See, I want you to know that 
that the only way you can access the presence of God in worship is through Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that we have clean hands and pure hearts, undivided loyalties, and truthful words. Loved ones, I hope you understand the necessity of being rightly related to Christ Jesus. The third point this morning, the first one is simply the marvel that's set before us, that we can approach God. The second is the mandate that's set before us, which is to approach God in holiness and in purity. And the third one is simply the model that's set before us. The first part of verse 6 is fairly clear. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Just a note first for a sec back in verse 5. It's a wonderful note. It says, as, as we approach God through Christ, that we receive blessing and righteousness from the God of our salvation. I don't have time to think on that, but just think, what, think that one through this afternoon for yourself, loved one. So we come to verse 6, and it's pretty clear in the first part, the sort of people that ascend to the hill of God are those uh, of that generation who seek him through the provision of God. And then the second part of verse 6 is also fairly clear, who seek the face of God. It's just a reiteration of the first part of that same verse. But then there's that, that little phrase there, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And I thought, why is Jacob thrown in here? If you were to take time to look at a few different translations of the Bible, English translations of the Bible, you would recognize that there was some trouble that the translators had in trying to render the original language that is given there. I think probably the best uh, translation of that, it's a literal translation, but I think the one that comes closest is the New American Standard Bible, which says, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. The, the interesting thing is the, the New, New International Standard Bible gets it right, though. They, they, they note that even is in italic, so that they've added it to try and give sense to what the actual Hebrew wording is of it. If we just read it literally, it would be something like this. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, Jacob. And so I have the best way that I think that I can understand it is simply this. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face like Jacob. In other words, he's holding up Jacob as an example of those who seek God in this way. And you think, whoa, that's strange. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know anything about Jacob's life, you think that's the last person that we think that God would hold up as an example of what it means to seek God. You've read about him. He was a schemer. He fudged the truth. He was just devious in his actions. And we think, is, is Jacob really meant to be a model for us that is comparative with a generation that seeks God? And I think the way that I helped myself in that was to go to Genesis chapter 32, which is about the conclusion of the Old Testament's account of Jacob. And there's two sort of indications of Jacob which I think are helpful in our models for me. The first one is that as he's about to re-enter the land of Canaan, he's in utter fear of his brother Jacob. He had deceived Jacob, and now Jacob was coming to him with 400 men on horses to meet him. 
And as he wrestled with God in prayer, he fell back on the promises of God to him. And he said, the promise of God was, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for its vastness. So it was clear that it was not Jacob who could prevent him from entering the promised land. Only God could do that. And it is not Jacob that he must fear. It is God that he must fear. And so he put his faith and his trust in the promises of God. And I think if I transfer that to how we worship God, it is not by, um, by anything that I can do or anything anybody else can do that can hold me out of the presence of God, but I have entrance into the presence of God by the promise that he has given me that if I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I have access to God. And so we worship in the same way as Jacob did by claiming and clinging to and trusting the promises of God to us. And in second place, at the end of chapter 32, in verses 24 to 30, we have the account of Jacob wrestling with God. He had sent all his family ahead now. They had gone over the river. And now Jacob was left back. And all through the night, he would have a wrestling match with God. And it was a brutal wrestling match. It really, God could have just like flicked him and that would have been the end of it. But he fought and he wrestled with him all night. And finally, the, the angel of God knew that he wasn't going to give him up or give up. So he touched him and he put his hip out of joint. And yet David, or, uh, um, Jacob still hung on to God. And this is what it says in verse 30 of that chapter. It says that he called on the name of, or he called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face of God, and yet my life has been delivered. What is it about Jacob that is helpful to us or that is a model to us that maybe David is alluding to? I think it's maybe his attitude. His singular desire that he would even risk his life. He would insist, I will not let you go until you bless me. In other words, what David holds out to us is to model the way that Jacob knew how to hang on to God for dear life. It is not through ourselves that we have access to him. It is through what God has given to us in Christ. And I will not let you go until you bless me. I think we need to be a little bit more like Jacob. We need to hang on, not let go, not give up, singularly devoted, singularly focused on God. I need to be a little bit more desperate. And so we ask, who is this king of glory? He is the holy one, the savior of mankind. The great marvel of this text that David holds out to us is that God is approachable. The mandate that David holds out to us is that we can approach God only in the way that he has set out for us and that the only way that we can approach in the way that God has set out for us is through Jesus Christ. And the model that he has set out for us is Jacob who demonstrated trust in God's promises and desperation for God. I think these questions that David had asked, asked who can ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in the holy place is a, is a helpful way in which we approach the Lord's table this morning. Who is it that can come to the Lord's table? I think it's a great question to ask. I think anyone can come to the Lord's table, but we come only through Jesus Christ. It's an open table. It's a, it's a wonderful thing about salvation is anyone 
can call out to Christ and put their faith in Christ and be saved. And this table is a reminder to us today of what Jesus Christ has done for us in cleansing us and washing us and renewing us. There's that great song that we do sing from time to time. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Who may approach this table this morning? Those who have been plunged into the precious, cleansing, redeeming blood of Jesus Christ.